Spinal cord injuries are always concerning and more complex than they seem. And did you know there is a connection to osteoporosis? I'm your host, Krista Lamb, and today on Unbreakable, the OC podcast from Osteoporosis Canada, I'll be talking with Dr. Kathy Craven, who is the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute and University of Toronto Chair in Spinal Cord Injury Rehabilitation. So welcome to the show, Dr. Craven. It is so nice to have you here to talk about this. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here today. Wonderful. So let's get started because I think this is a topic people will be really interested in because it's one I didn't know a lot about, and I'm sure there are others in the audience who are learning about this for the first time. So did you want to start by explaining what a spinal cord injury is? So a spinal cord injury is caused by damage to the spinal cord. It's really a tight bundle of cells and nerves that live inside the vertebral canal. And these nerves send and receive signals from the brain to and from the rest of the body. Spinal cord injury can be caused by direct injury to the spinal cord itself or from damage to the surrounding tissue and vertebrae that surround the spinal cord and compress it when it swells. Spinal cord injury results in a number of motor, sensory, and autonomic impairments, which alter the person's life, health, and functional mobility. Um, Spinal cord injury is relatively rare in Canada, fortunately, and there are about 3,700 new cases each year. And there are about 86,000 people living with spinal cord injury in Canada. 40% of this population lives in the province of Ontario. So that's really interesting that so many of them are in Ontario. But when it comes to osteoporosis, I would really love to know a little bit more about how spinal injury and osteoporosis are connected, because those are things I hadn't thought about. Really great question. So the answer is yes, are osteoporosis and spinal cord injury connected? Before we sort of talk with this, I just wanted to note that the pattern of bone loss that we see after spinal cord injury is very different than what we would typically talk about in the osteoporosis population for those with endocrine disorders or disuse osteoporosis associated with aging. In general, after spinal cord injury, there is maintenance of bone above the level of injury and loss of bone mass or declining bone mass below the level of injury, particularly in the hip and knee region. So in the general population, we see low bone mass in the wrist, the spine, and the hip. And in spinal cord injury, we see low bone mass in the hip and knee region. So the distribution is very different. When you have a spinal cord injury, and if you have a motor complete injury where there's no voluntary movement or sensation, in the sacral myotome, so around your anal sphincter, then the rates of decline in bone marrow density are very predictable and they are massive. Um, So young men, young women, older men, older women will have a three to 4% per month decline in bone marrow density of the hip and knee region. And at two years post-injury, their bone mass is usually 35 to 50% of where they started from. So People with spinal cord injury lose as much bone as women do during menopause in the first two years after their injury. If you have an incomplete injury where you have preservation of some of your motor and sensory function, the rate and severity of decline of bone mineral density is less predictable. So for those with motor complete, we can really like plot it out and understand it and predict it very reliably. And those with motor complete injury have some preservation of sensation and motor function below the level of the injury, the rate and pattern of decline is less predictable. And we're just starting as a spinal cord injury community to kind of understand that a little bit more. 
that when there, there are these early changes after injuries, this very dramatic, big decline in bone marrow density. And then after that, when you, once you reach that two years post-injury, then there's just small incremental declines associated with aging. Um, and then, of course, if you are a woman um, who's going through menopause or a man going through andropause, you then see accelerated declines associated with that. And so in terms of someone who has a spinal cord injury, are they for sure going to get osteoporosis? Is this something that they can do something in order to prevent or reduce their risk? Or is this a given? Great question. For those with motor complete injury, there are several factors that seem to influence the predictability. So if they have a very severe injury, meaning loss of motor and sensory function, some autonomic dysfunction and a higher level injury, so more of a tetraplegia versus a paraplegia, if they have muscle spasticity, if they're older at the time of injury onset, and depending on the duration of their injury, that can influence what their bone mass is. Like everything, when you have a, a chronic health condition, you know, knowledge is power. So one of the big first things that people can do is really just know your bone mass and your fracture risk. So we usually ask for any providers who might be listening that they would refer patients with spinal cord injury for bone marrow density testing. And the International Society of Clinical Densitometry has recommended that we measure the hip the distal femur and the proximal tibia regions among patients with spinal cord injury, because this is where their fracture risk is highest. When we talk about fracture risk after spinal cord injury, we look and think about those individuals fracture risk based on the sort of conventional T and Z scores as you would in the general osteoporosis population. But we also look for some important clinical risk factors. And there are the big two. So people who have had prior fracture and have a very low knee region bone density are the most likely to fracture. But we know those who've had an injury for more than 10 years who are motor complete or have a paraplegia are at greatest risk of fracture. When you think about, I think you asked me about therapies and what a person can do. I think there's a lot that people can do to um, help themselves. So one of the things is as part of the Osteoporosis Canada guidelines, there's a recommendation that everyone undergo serum screening. And we would actually recommend that patients with spinal cord injury actually undergo this same screening as soon as possible after their injury, or if they had a recent 10% interval decline in bone marrow density, a new fracture, or they have a big change in their medical condition. And so that's the same routine screening that a family physician would do in their office that we would ask be done in patients with uh, spinal cord injury. So looking for common secondary causes of osteoporosis. When we do this, we find that one in three patients has something that is amenable to a bit of treatment. For those patients who have motor complete injuries, who have um, less likelihood of motor recovery, so they're not going to be somebody who returns to walking, and they would be using a wheelchair to move about their home and community after their spinal cord injury, this is the group that we recommend consider drug or rehab interventions to help maintain their uh, bone mass. So uh, for this group, we would ask that people have an adequate but not excessive dietary calcium intake, that they take vitamin D to maintain a 25-hydroxy serum level or a vitamin D level above 80 nanomoles uh, per liter. And for those who are going to be wheelchair users, that they consider the role of alendronate, zoledronic acid, or denosumab 
for preventing the secondary decline in bone marrow density. And that's usually given early post-injury to try to turn off that dramatic bone loss that we just uh, talked about. And for everyone, we recommend that people try to participate in weight-bearing exercise, particularly exercise involving the lower extremities. And we're talking about exercise for three to five times a week for at least a year. And the two exercises that have been shown to be beneficial, one is what I would call passive standing. So that would be doing some regular loading of your bones while you're standing in what's called a standing frame, which is a device that helps somebody to stand up who's not able to do it independently for themselves. This could also be done in a tilt table if you have access to a tilt table in a a gym. When we think about, so there's an opportunity that one can do passive standing one hour, five times per week, but you need to do it for about two years after your injury. So it's a big investment of purchasing the equipment and spending some time in the standing frame to get that done. And for those who are fortunate and have access and funding to support uh, physical therapy, there are two types of therapy. One's called FES, functional electrical stimulation, the other neuromuscular electrical stimulation. And uh, this is where we apply electrodes over a muscle and uh, stimulate the muscle to contract because the patient cannot uh, or may be able to do it voluntarily themselves. And for FES, what's unique about that is when we stimulate the muscle to contract, the person is able to complete some form of a functional path. So like uh, cycling on a reclining bike or rowing. And for NMES, the only difference there is we're really looking for not just the visible and functional contraction, but an isometric contraction, which is often done against gravity or uh, during standing. And when we're using FES or NMES, it's really important that we choose the right stimulation parameters to create lower limb muscle contractions. And uh, for those physiotherapists who might be listening, we're talking about uh, pulse durations of 200 microseconds or higher frequencies of 20 to 33 hertz and amplitudes of up to 140 milliamps. And for those of you who this technical jargon is very confusing, if you go to a local physiotherapist who provides neurologic rehab services, they would be very well versed with this technology and be able to introduce you to it. And fortunately, now there are more of these devices available that people could potentially purchase a standing frame or an FES bike or rowing machine for use in their home. That's fantastic and really helpful information for those of us who are interested in learning more about where to get access to some of those therapies. So the next question, you had mentioned calcium in the nutrition standards and guidelines that you would use. For people who aren't sure if they're getting enough calcium in their diet, is this something that you would recommend a supplement? What do you say about calcium? Really great question. So number one, we always try to get people to get their calcium through diet rather than through supplements to try to reduce the risk of sort of ectopic calcation in places where we don't want it. In patients with spinal cord injury, dietary calcium seems to be better for preventing uh, constipation or contributing to stone disease. So many people with spinal cord injury have a neurogenic bladder and they have an increased risk of developing stones in their bladder or stones in their kidney. So we always wanna make sure the person's getting enough calcium to keep their bones healthy, but not so much that their risk of stones is higher. So for those people who have a history of kidney stones, maybe before they had their spinal cord injury, or there's a family history, those people, we try to get them to have about 750 to 1000 milligrams a day 
So a little bit lower than the regular Osteoporosis Canada guideline for uh, intake. I really like the calcium assessment tool, which is available on uh, www.osteoconnections.ca. It's a self-guided tool that patients and families can use to say, am I getting enough calcium? And then if you're not, you could reach out to a dietitian, your pharmacist, family physician, or if you have an osteoporosis specialist, they could try to help you to make sure you're getting enough, but not too much. That's really interesting and a great resource. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was fracture. And I know in the osteoporosis community, fracture is something that everyone is always thinking about. If you've had a spinal cord injury, are you more likely to fracture? And are there things that you would need to consider to try and prevent fracture? Wow, <laughs> really loaded question. Yes. Um, individuals with spinal cord injury are at high risk of fracture um, once they have established low bone marrow density and high fracture risk. There are some risk factors for fracture that are unique to the spinal cord injury population that I thought we should maybe mention here. So we did talk about those who had highest risk of fracture were those who had a prior lower extremity long bone fracture or have low knee region bone mineral density when they have the bone density test we just uh, touched on previously. Also those who have a motor complete injury or an injury of more than 10 years duration, a family history of fracture, and the other one is alcohol intake. So those people who have a little bit of binge drinking on the weekend who are having greater than five servings per day of alcohol that can really increase their fracture risk. And the other thing is there's a number of medications, anticonvulsants, benzodiazepines, and opioid analgesics or narcotics have been shown to increase fracture risk in the spinal cord injury population. They're very potent predictors. So not only do you want to get off these medications because they can cause drowsiness and increase your risk of fall during a transfer from your wheelchair or when you're walking around, but also these medications actually have detrimental effects on bone and increase fracture risk. And I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned there because you said alcohol use. And I know sometimes people are really hesitant to talk to their physician about using alcohol or cannabis or whatever it might be that they're doing that they don't feel completely safe talking to their healthcare practitioner. Can you explain why it would be important that they were talking to their physician and letting them know that they are, you know, perhaps using alcohol or anything that, you know, they might not want to talk about? Okay, well, it's very important as a part of any bone health assessment that we share, are you, you know, are you smoking and how much are you smoking? Smoking uh, can be an independent risk factor for low bone mass or put to a greater risk for different types of cancers that might be the reason why you present with a fracture that is not actually osteoporosis uh, related. The other two things we like to ask about are alcohol, caffeine, and marijuana. And, you know, each of these medications have different positive and negative effects, but also there's the potential for drug interactions if you're uh, considering pharmacotherapy for treatment of your osteoporosis or just thinking about how these things might interact with the other medications you might be taking for other health conditions. So it is really important to try to disclose it's often uh, tough for people, but it is really important when you get to know someone, you have a good rapport with them, I would encourage people to reach out and to share. And I think uh, some of the attitudes associated with use of medical marijuana have started to change with uh, changes in society. So I think there's a little bit more room now for people to talk very honestly about how much alcohol or other substances they're taking. I know for me, I always have to talk about my caffeine intake especially in the winter months as it tends to kind of slide up here in Canada. 
um, but it is very important. Um, some of these medications can affect your bone metabolism as well. Um, too much caffeine can result in greater diuresis of calcium. So an important thing to think about as you're moving forward. Yeah. And that is really helpful. I think, I just think it's so important that we remind people that sometimes these things that we think we're, you know, don't have an impact might. So it's always good to disclose them to, to your physician. So that is excellent. I wanted to also ask you a little bit, because I think someone with osteoporosis has a spinal cord injury. Are the differences in treatment large? Would you treat them with the same things that someone with osteoporosis without a spinal cord injury would be treated with? Uh, we definitely use some of the same medications. So uh, the ones I discussed previously, alendronate, uh, zoledronic acid, and denosumab are commonly used in the general OP population. And we also use them in spinal cord injury. The only thing is there are some little bit different relative contraindications in the SCI community that would be different from the general population. So as a simple example, a patient who is quadriplegic and has lost voluntary movement of their arms and hands will have a reduction in sensation. And so um, they might develop a very severe gastroesophageal reflux and not know it and not be able to report it to you. So they might report something as a side effect as minimal as, oh, I have this metal taste in my mouth. But uh, when you actually scope them, they have, you know, very severe GERD or esophagitis or an untreated ulcer. So we have to be a little bit cautious about the oral medications in the spinal cord injury community. With zoledronic acid, we have to think about well, sometimes when you get infusion, it puts people at risk for a transient fever and hypocalcemia. And our spinal cord injury patients often spike fevers when they have common health complications like a urinary tract infection. So sometimes it's difficult to separate out what is related to the infusion, what is just a health event that is happening. So the treatment team just needs to be aware of, and oftentimes we'll just administer the drug and a little bit slower to reduce the risk of that febrile reaction with the infusion. And with denosumab in particular, um, one of its sort of common relative contraindications is that it can increase the risk of cellulitis. And so for patients with spinal cord injury who have insensate skin and are at risk for pressure injury, so where they have open sores overlying a bony prominence, they would have a much higher risk of developing cellulitis or osteomyelitis than the general population. So in the presence of open wounds, we would tend to hesitate about giving denosumab and might uh, choose another medication option until their wound has um, healed. So not that we can't give these medications, but they're a little bit different uh, consideration. For people who don't have hand function or have trouble swallowing, sometimes with alendronate, you can make a slurry and they can drink the slurry. So you put the pill in a solution and let it dissolve and then drink it as opposed to ingesting it as you would in the general population. So yes, we use the same drugs and look for similar treatment response and fracture risk reduction. I think one of the things to point out in the general population, there are many large clinical trials with many, many people showing the therapeutic indication for the medications. And in the spinal cord injury community, we have a small number of clinical trials with a small number of people in them, around 40 for most of the clinical trials. And most of the trials are powered to look at changes in bone mass. So they look at does bone density increase or decrease in response to therapy and they're not actually powered to look at fracture risk reduction. So we know that the bone medications we use to treat help to improve bone mass. They make the bone more dense. So um, hopefully that the cort bone cortex is getting thicker and the trabecular volume and number 
are increasing, but we haven't actually had a study that was large enough to tell us that these medications actually reduce fracture risk in the spinal cord injury population. We assume that improvements in bone mass equates to fracture risk uh, reduction. That's one of the limitations of the spinal cord injury literature compared to the general osteoporosis population. Yeah, it's always interesting when we're talking about smaller populations because it's harder to do these trials with a small population. And so that is definitely something to consider. And it's good that we have that uh, disclaimer. Now, as we start to wrap up, I can't believe that it's been, uh, we're already wrapping up. It seems like time is flying by. But is there anything else that you would like people to know about osteoporosis and spinal cord that you think might be helpful if they're learning about this? I think the most important thing is to get your bone density measured so you know if you do or do not have low bone mass or osteoporosis and to look at your bone mineral density values with a rated healthcare provider and some of your clinical risk factors to know your fracture risk. For those who have a high risk of fracture, you really should be reaching out to a specialist and uh, trying to get some therapy. And for those who are at low risk of fracture, there's a variety of lifestyle modifications available to you, trying to reduce your secondary risk by minimizing alcohol, caffeine, smoking cessation, and ensuring you get an adequate dietary calcium and vitamin D intake. And participate in that routine three times a week, weight-bearing exercise so that we're loading the bones and uh, trying to get those positive adaptive responses between the interactions between the muscle and the bone. Again, I think knowledge is power. Knowing what your BMD is, is a very first, good first place to start. Excellent. That is fantastic advice. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Krista. I'm Krista Lamb, and you've been listening to Unbreakable, the OC podcast from Osteoporosis Canada. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Kathy Craven about osteoporosis and spinal cord injury. If you'd like more information on osteoporosis, visit our website at osteoporosis.ca. If you have questions or comments about this topic or about our podcast, reach out to us on our website or via social media. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoying the show? Hit subscribe in the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening.